Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me to whisper and tiptoe our way safely through this podcast is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hello. I think you're better at whispering than I am. I've had a lot of practice because I live with an eight-year-old who gets up way too early. (laughs) Do you find yourself wanting to pretend you're Batman right now? Never. Always Superman. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Different one. He's more raspy like this. Yeah, it is, but it it feels a lot like a whisper too. Like when I don't know, there's a similarity to it. Bit Batman in training. Yeah, I guess so. It's a bit like Batman. Batman in training. Bit. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah, did wow. it. Okay, okay, we're not talking about that. No, we're not. Well, for the first time in a long while, Patrick and I are able to cover a brand new theatrical release together on its opening weekend. I actually don't remember the last one, but maybe it was Onward? Or did you bow out of Onward? I No, 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 we did Onward. Okay, we I, did Onward. And the last the last theater experience I had was a way was a way back. That that's we right. Didn't cover. We we bailed no, on the episode because yeah. the pandemic started. Yeah, right. yeah, that's what happened. Okay, so yeah, this this has been a while, it's been a long while, and we have decided to take a more selective approach going forward about which films we're going to give this treatment to. That basically means we'll be sticking to the movies that we are pretty darn sure that we are going to love going into them. We're not going to take as many risks with these episodes. And John Grisinski's follow up to his surprise hit thriller, A Quiet Place did not let us down. So with that said, let's just go ahead and jump into our one word takeaways. Patrick, get us going. All right. Well, I noticed that in the notes, you went ahead and put our one word takeaways for the first film, which is really nice. Because I did. I thought that'd be neat. My one word takeaway originally was the exact one word takeaway from the original, unexpected. And so I had to kind of think a little bit and I came up with originally unnecessary. Because I remember leaving the theater and finishing up the first film going, man, that was a complete story to me. And when I heard about the potential sequel coming out, I was like, great, another cash cow. Take advantage. And you know what? In his defense, look, if you've got a successful moneymaker, I guess pull forward. But man, don't diminish the franchise that it's going to become by coming up with the second one. I mean, if you've got something good, then let it be. And that's kind of how I thought going through. But then I watched the movie, and listeners, you can't see our notes, but I actually crossed out the UN in unnecessary, because after watching this movie, I felt like this was necessary. I felt like I got something that I hadn't gotten before, obviously, it's a new story, but I got more of a completion, a more rounded outness of the places, the characters, the backstory, everything that really gave this second entry its legs was perfect for what Krasinski I think set up in the first so while the first one was a story in and of itself having the second one helps give the first one a little bit of oomph saying it was a great setup story it's kind of like how I feel about the Godfather the first one's really great 
The second one to me is perfect, but really only because the first one exists. It cannot have legs without the first entry. And I feel like A Quiet Place Part 2 does that same thing. I don't know that it would stand on its own apart from its predecessor, but I think both of them get equally elevated because of the fact that they both exist. So for me, this was not a waste of an hour and a half of my time. This is a great second entry, and it actually makes me excited about potentially something coming after this, if possible. Well, I want to talk about that more back and forth a little bit once we get into this, because I have some thoughts as well. That's that's good. I'm glad that you feel that way. My one more take, I guess my, I'll tell you my previous one more takeaway was Terror, which obviously I think anybody who's seen the original film and has seen this film understands Terror is very fitting, and Terror would work here too. But I decided to go with the word expansion, and I say that because I felt like this was such a genuinely surprising expansion of multiple aspects of the film. And it wasn't just an expansion of the story, right, which is generally a continuation of going from point A to point C, or and, you know, we ended at B on the first movie, and now we need to go further, whatever the case may be. But we get an expansion of character development. We get an expansion of learning about the world. And we get an expansion as well on the filmmaking style that Krasinski uses. And I thought that that was one of the things that really, really stood out to me was that he managed to try some new tactics with his camera work and the way in which the monsters are very visible in this film changes up some of the things that he had to do and it all kind of worked especially with uh, the opening sequence is another another area where it was very different stylistically from something we saw in the first film and yet everything that we get in this expansion still feels unique Yes, it's still playing in that same world, but it doesn't just feel like a retread. It does feel like it is truly expanding upon an original idea and moving it forward. And a lot of sequels don't do that. And a lot of films that try to become franchises or series, they feel very, very similar to the And it's hard to, it's hard to delineate this line. I, I understand that. It's kind of like, murky i don't know that i can just put it down on paper in words and completely explain it but a lot of them don't feel like they truly push a story forward and this one did for me in all of the right ways so i i loved it and i'm excited to get into the details so that's what we're going to do right now we're going to talk about the film in full and that means spoilers if you haven't seen a quiet place part two it is in theaters so if you're able, if you're feeling safe, if you're healthy, if your theaters are open, get your butt to a theater. It is well worth your money. That's what I'll say. Okay, speaking of the theater, that's a perfect segue, unintentionally, into our first topic, Patrick. This was your first trip back to the theater since last year when they shut down because of the pandemic here in the U.S., and this was also my first press screening back, so not my first trip back to the theater, but it was my first press screening in 14 months. In fact, the next movie I was going to go screen was A Quiet Place Part 2 uh, back in March when we shut things down. This was the first thing that got canceled. And I wanted to talk about our experiences a little bit. And I'll tell you, mine was 
interesting. I, I actually waffled back and forth when I got my press screening invite. They said no digital option for this one, and that is rare so far. Like we've been able to get most everything in digital links. So I was like, man, I haven't been back to the theater in so long. And, you know, I got to put the dog in the crate and I got to go pay for parking. And I don't remember this is going to get back into the habit of all of this stuff. And I just I was worried, to be honest, that it wasn't going to feel worth it and that I would have moved on past my desire to kind of be back in that theater setting. Like you go without something for a long time and you start to wonder, do you really need it still? Do you still really want it? And for me, when I got into the theater and all of my different press critic friends started walking in because it was a press only screening, getting to see everybody for the first time in 14 months, you know, getting to hug and, and say hi and just catch up. It, it was it was actually emotional, to be honest, uh, in a way that was very surprising. And then just being in the theater and coming out of it was also emotional because it was like, wow, <laughs> oh, and, and I'd been to movies, you know, since then, but not quite in this format. And this being such a great theater movie, in my opinion, I was so pleasantly surprised that they had forced us into this situation because this, this movie doesn't play as well at home. It just doesn't, period. Like you're distracted. You have a phone go off. You've got to pause and go to the bathroom, which completely cuts a knife in the middle of the tension and the suspense that's building from stop you know, moment one all the way to the end of this film nonstop. And so those aspects you get to experience. And I was just blown away, honestly, by the feeling I had being back in the movie theater for this purpose and seeing a film that, you know, really is one of those great movies that highlights what we love about going to the cinema for. And it, and it just it was the perfect marriage of, you know, the movie to come back to in my opinion, because it could have sucked. We could have, you know, it could have been something terrible. And I'm so glad that my first time back in the theater for this was not like a really bad movie, because I think it would have tainted some of that other experience as well. But everything just worked so well together. And I'm, I'm hoping you had a similar response, but I kind of wanted to hear about it. Well, I, I went in the same way you did. I, I was not necessarily enthused about going to the theater and not because I had other responsibilities. Um, I think like most people, you kind of get theater atrophy because of being out for so long, having the opportunity to be able to watch movies at home. HBO Max is, of course, giving us a taste of that with these direct to their digital format on the same day that the theaters release it. Disney Plus is doing the same thing. And I actually had a similar conversation with a friend of mine who I talk movies with at the office. And he wasn't really excited about getting back to the theater. He goes, are you going to go see anything anytime soon? And I mentioned this one. And he goes, oh, yeah, I might go see that. And it got us into that conversation about is it worth going back to the theater? But I absolutely agree with you. I don't have the critic experience because I'm not part of that. And that's, I'm not envious of that necessarily. Uh, and some days I'm not. Some days I am. But I think the theater experience itself is something that cannot be replicated. And it's about being with people. It's about experiencing jump scares and laughs and things that are made to be communal. My wife and I just watched the Friends reunion on HBO Max last night. She wanted to check it out. 
and they were showing clips from episodes and we were just laughing hysterically. And she looked at me and she said, you want to watch that series, don't you? Because we, we never really watched it regularly, but there's something about, yes, I'd love to watch that, but I'd rather watch it with somebody else that I can laugh with, that you can experience those things with. And I'll tell you, to to be perfectly candid, I was one of three people in the theater. This was a one o'clock matinee on a Friday. And this is when I usually go see films for the show because most of the time, Chris is not as interested. She just she definitely wasn't interested in this movie. But I think what I loved about it was being in that space. And like you said, I physically put my phone away. I could put it in my back pocket or somewhere where I couldn't easily get to it. I should have left it in the car, just to be frank. But I need to get a picture and say something really snarky to you about what is this place? You know, when I took a picture of the screen. And it, it was magical. It was just great to be home, as you mentioned uh, in your text back to me, because being in the theater is so different than being at home. Those distractions that you mentioned, it just takes away from the appeal. And I jokingly laughed at this. John Krasinski comes onto the big screen and he says, thank you for coming to this film. It's been a long time coming. We know you've waited. And I sort of laughingly thought he was talking to me. But at the same time, I'm thinking... This is what a genuine director who loves filmmaking and loves the whole film experience is wanting to do. And I love stuff like that. I loved it when Hugh Jackman and the director of The Greatest Showman did that. We hope you enjoyed this. Because going to the theater is part of the experience. Not just making the movie, watching the movie, analyzing the movie, talking about the movie, but actually experiencing the movie in an environment like this. And there's so much about it that I think gets lost when you're at the mercy of your home with natural light coming in with distractions like your phone or your biology, you know, these types of things that you force yourself to put down and ignore to an extent for the sake of giving a film the respect it deserves. And that's what I think the theater brings that the digital aspect loses that you don't respect the film in a way that I think it could be respected when you go to the theater, especially when you're potentially paying 10 or $15 for a ticket, you make it a whole experience like bringing your kids and buying food and those types of things, man, to hear people talking in the theater, you accept it when you're sitting on the couch and that's right. gets distracted, <laughs> but you don't in the theater. And I, I really do think it's about respecting the environment and respecting the experience. And the theater does that. I hope that this is something that I can continue to, appreciate. I hope that with more people getting vaccinated, with more people feeling comfortable being out and about in spaces like the movie theater, that honestly Regal and AMC and these other chains can survive and not only survive, but thrive. And just like as fans, we want films to get made. I think it's important for these film, these theaters to be able to say, hey, look, Maybe it's time to reassess. Can we chop off a couple of bucks at the box office? Can we make snacks a little bit less expensive so that people can feel like they're not having to take out a loan at the bank just to have a good movie experience as a family? Maybe that'll be a welcome change with sort of the repercussions that have taken place because of the pandemic. I hope so. 
And uh, in the meantime, I'll continue to enjoy my Regal Pass and just keep getting movies for free as long as I can. Well, not free, but you know. I was going to say, they're not free. (laughs) They're not free. That's like how people think Netflix is free, and it's like, "Mm, you're paying them every single month, actually. (laughs) Subscriptions, yeah, are the they are the the uh the trojan horse i guess to get you into saying that you're paying for stuff so uh short answer is i had a great experience and i can't wait to go back good good i think that that's pretty much par for the course for most people that i've heard from who went to see this and you know it really is great that it was this movie and a movie that was so good because again like if it had been bad the so much of what we just talked about would not have been the case. We would have felt like, oh, you know, well, I went back and it was lackluster and now I'm not necessarily going to be in a hurry to go back again and would have felt let down. Yeah. Well, and let me just add this. The, I know as a, as a, as a press critic, you guys don't get, you guys don't get trailers. You're not, you're not bombarded with 20 minutes of like, you know, this film has been rated blah, blah, blah. The following awesome. preview. <laughs> it's awesome. it is awesome i love that i love but i also love the fact from the from the you know the the layman's perspective that i can walk in 20 minutes later because i've timed it i've gone to enough movies enough times to know ah 20 minutes worth of previews that's really how much they give you i can walk in 20 minutes later and and start my my movie experience especially with the science seating Aaron, this time I actually enjoyed the trailers. I enjoyed seeing what was coming up because the thing is, is I'm not as engaged online with what's coming out. I mean, you are essentially my Facebook. You're essentially the the internet for me because you'll throw articles to me about new things that are coming out. And with the exception of Top Gun Maverick, which I've seen the trailer for, there were several new films that I didn't know were coming out. And I kind of got excited. And that's something that I haven't experienced in a while is – you're watching trailers on the big screen like, oh, my gosh, there's a new M. Night Shyamalan movie. I hope it doesn't suck because, you know, it's got a great premise like everything else he does. But sometimes it doesn't hit the mark. And I just I think that that's something else that you either it's like the Olympics. You either really love it or you really don't at all. And I, I love trailers. I think it's fantastic. Now, if we're going to like during the summer when we were just doing like movie after movie after movie in the theater Yes, you were seeing probably the same the ones, same, the same over ones. And over. Granted, they were tailored to the movie you were about to see. So I saw a lot yeah. of suspenseful, like, oh, my gosh, another Conjuring movie. Great. I don't need to let my eyes see that because that's going to freak me out way too much. So I did avert a little bit. But in line with those, you see the new M. Night movie coming out old, which I think has a fantastic premise. Like you like you mentioned, I'm hoping that it lives up to that. I think it's, you know, it's hit or miss. But there were other ones that. I think the excitement of saying, cool, there are movies coming out that that would be fun to see in the theater. And uh, and I think that's an aspect that, you know, there are people out there that I think get a thrill for that. My wife loves seeing trailers. And so when we go, she's like, let's make sure we get there in time for the trailers to start. And I'm like, absolutely, let's do that. So I enjoyed that as well. Yeah, I think that not to segue this into a whole big conversation about trailers, but I think that the less that you see them, the more fun it is to see them when you see them. because you're not watching every single trailer that comes out for every single movie online like people in our Facebook group might do, some people. Or if you're going to the movie theater every single week for a new film and you're going to see all of the trailers all the time, like you've mentioned, some of them over and over and over. When you're just going once every four or five months <laughs> to a movie, yeah, seeing the trailers is a very big part of that experience. 
and is a really cool thing. And I would totally get that 100% of the time. Um, I've been back and forth, as you know. I mean, I've gone through periods where I went a year without watching them. I've gone through periods where I've watched every single trailer that comes out. Now I'm back in a period of where, right now, I'm choosing not to watch much. Um, you know, what I see, I see, and I'm just not going out of my way. I had not seen one for Quiet Place Part 2. This is one that, unintentionally, for the last year and a half, two years, I never had watched it. And so I just kind of kept that going and perfectly happy with that. Because, as we lead into this, I would have assumed, Patrick, that this was going to be about Emily Blunt. Because Emily Blunt is a superstar. (laughs) And that's just a fact. And the movie ends with Emily Blunt being a superstar and kicking alien... I guess we'll call them aliens. Alien butt with a shotgun. Alien ears. Alien ears. That's what she's kicking. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, I was gonna say I was gonna say monster, <laughs> alien, monster, but they're aliens. They are from outer space. They we did get proof that they hit in somehow from space. So, uh, yeah, I expected with no John Krasinski that it was gonna feature and focus on her, and we start off that way, right? But then what we end up with is these two parallel stories about the kids going on different journeys and this was a choice (laughs) okay this was a choice and i feel like this was a dangerous choice and that many a studio would push back on this choice of splitting the family up because you essentially are then relying on these kids to largely carry various portions of the movie as we continually flash back and forth between the two of them. Emily Blunt shows up. She's, you know, interspersed in there, here and there. And Cillian Murphy shows up and and is able to kind of play some of that fatherly role, whereas Emily Blunt's playing the motherly role as the, you know, different with the different kids. But the kids lead the charge in this for me. And it worked really well because for me i thought that it made the two kids having their character development arcs seem much more realistic like it wasn't forced in there because they were on their own little journeys they were dealing with their own issues at very at the same time but unbeknownst to each other so so for example regan you said regan and marcus right i'm gonna remember this for the yeah. first time in the history of feeling film, Patrick knows the names of the characters or whatever, and I don't. Because um, they're less than like five. Because they don't even name. Yeah, they're not even mentioned in this stupid movie. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, we have them. They're very. They're only together for the, the intro of this film, maybe the first thirty minutes. Then they go on these divergent paths, and so they don't know what's happening to each other. That's the thing. Like at the end of this film, Regan has no earthly idea that Marcus has gone through this insane battle with a lack of oxygen and an alien creeping in and trying to take care of their baby brother sister don't know baby sibling and um so that's happening and then he doesn't have any idea that she's gone through like getting captured by this you know cult of scavenging humans that i guess have become cannibals possibly and you know found this eye like she he has no earthly idea any of this right they're just trying to survive and they're trying to do what they can do for the pieces of their family and the stories that they're they're dealing with on their own little journeys and so for me i thought it was brilliant um it was gutsy 
because I, I could see how this would easily fall apart if your kids are not up to task. But Millicent Simmons and Noah Jupe for me, I think are phenomenal, both of them. And they did an amazing job of carrying these arcs uh, with and allowing, you know, Emily Blunt and Cillian Murphy, who are freaking amazing actors to be supporting roles that really played perfectly, I thought. And so I liked going back and forth. It didn't I think it also. Allowed some of the suspense building in the film to kind of ebb and flow at different times so you're not necessarily like millicent simmons and regan's arc or whatever she may not have somebody coming at her at that exact moment like she might be in danger and we would flash back and it might be a moment where marcus is like dealing with something significantly um, dangerous in that moment and so while one character starts to get a break. You almost like as an audience member, and this one thing about this movie that I think is so phenomenal with Krasinski's direction, is just the way that he, as with the first film, he's able to take this moment of tension at the start. And it just, it never lets you go. It, it literally just grabs you. And by the end of the movie, we'll talk about the ending, but it's, by the end of the movie, the ending is there intentionally presented to you, just like the first film in a way that is meant to let you go. <sighs> And finally, exhale. And so when Regan's story arc is not feeling that tension, when that's kind of starting to kind of level out a little bit and we flash back and we have Marcus and now the tension's back because Marcus is dealing with something. It never, ever lets you fully, fully relax. Um, and I just I love that about it. Yeah, the several things I want to talk about there. First of all, I think it's a great maneuver for the kids to be the center focus here for a couple of reasons. One I don't know that this would have been nearly as effective if we had had, if we'd not had things like the Hunger Games coming before it. There were a, there are a lot of stories that came out on the big screen where you had key figures in these kinds of situations that were kids, that were young adults, you know, teenagers. And I'm not saying that the believability wouldn't have been there, but I think we got a comfort level with these previous films that we could find more of that believability. The other thing is that. The first film gave us an opportunity to see Regan as her father's daughter. And I think that her anchoring that gave us the ability to see Marcus doing his stuff because I think he sort of revealed himself as his mother's son in that regard. I also think that having Evelyn and Emmett as anchors for them to not only dialogue with in the limited capacity that they could – but also act against helped push those arcs along. When you talk about the, the different types of tension where you have one person's tension leveling off and the other person's tension coming up, I think that was done intentionally, not only to keep your heart palpitating a little bit all throughout the film, but to also create this interesting, almost musical approach to having uneven to finally even as we get to the end of the film, because the way that Krasinski cuts back and forth between the different the different arcs that are happening, he gets faster with them as the movie comes to a close, and then eventually they're on top of one another. I think it's beautifully done in terms of cinematography, in terms of art direction. Obviously, the sound design is killer in this, but I think that having the kids anchor that 
it allows the family to expand because it's in the first film, it was Lee. Lee was leading his family and that was appropriate. And so that was a big question for me going into the second one. I was like, you killed off your main character. I apologize if that was a spoiler. If you're listening to this, you probably saw the first film. So, you know, whatever. But when you kill off the patriarch, the at you know the course to go to is the matriarch and then to almost skip that altogether by going to the kids it is risky but i also think it's appropriate because what are you going to do you're just going to repeat what you did in the first film hopefully mom doesn't die and then the kids are on their own no expand the family not only expanding the capabilities of the abbots but also bringing a character in like Murphy's Emmett to add an element of patriarchy, not replacing, but adding an element of patriarchy because he's lost a son too, to bring some sort of not closure, but fullness to that family. Because obviously what we see is a villain, almost like a kinsman redeemer of sorts as someone who's not trying to become the new dad, but that father figure that, creates some interesting tension against Regan because there's this wonderful conversation that she has with him after Mm -hmm. she's taken off and he's telling her, you've got to go back. And she's like, no, I can't. This is essentially who I am. And he goes, you're right. I could never be, you know, you are your father's daughter. I could never be like him. And of course that kind of pays itself off later in the film. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to see, not only their stories do what they do, but also see their acting chops. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, Millicent was fantastic in the first one, but then we get to see, you know, Marcus's character just completely come alive in the situation with his baby sibling. Honestly, Aaron, because we lost John Krasinski's character, we lost Lee in the first film, I was like, is this baby going to die? These are questions you don't get asked a lot unless you're because you expect, oh yeah, the good guys are going to win, or there's going to be some sacrifice, but the people you want to stay alive are going to stay alive. Nope. We lost that in the first film. And so Krasinski in his team of people give us this story where we're like, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to be along for the ride and we hope for the best. Yeah. And I think it's realistic. I mean, in my opinion, it's realistic. And I think it would have been the same thing if it had been Lee surviving and Emily Blunt's character, do you know her name too? Because obviously I don't know anybody's name. Evelyn. <laughs> really? Seriously? Yeah. I have no freaking idea. Uh, I am DB. I'm not going to call her Evelyn. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to do it. That's a dumb name. It doesn't sound right. I'm going to call her Emily. John. Emily and John. Emily's character. So even if it was her character who had died and Lee who had survived, either parent alone was not going to be able to sufficiently be able to take care of the baby and the two kids in a way that they would have had to, especially once Marcus gets into the bear trap, right? And now you've got this additional limitation for travel and for movement on you. And so trying to make her the superhero of this story would have really, really stretched the bounds of our imaginations, I think. And I I love that we, and so I love that we didn't do that. Do do you have a preference? Did one of the arcs hit stronger or weak or weaker for you with like with, it, with regards to Regan or Marcus, or did you really 
kind of react to them equally. No, I mean, Regan's overall was more fulfilling, but the moments with Marcus, I think, had more tension. And particularly with him a way to put it. struggling with the oxygen, you're making a choice. I mean, I'm sitting there going, who's going to die? And even when Evelyn comes in and she sees the baby crying and she sees him passed out, I'm like, oh, great, he died. No, don't start losing. Nope. And then she wakes him up and I breathed a sigh of relief. I was like, oh. But yeah, I think overall... Evelyn's was more memorable, but, but, excuse me, not Evelyn, but Regan's was more memorable, but Marcus, I think, had more tense moments. That's a great way to put it. I would, I would agree completely. And, I mean, for me, Regan was definitely, I thought, more affecting overall as well. I, I maybe because I just gravitated, I love Cillian Murphy in general. I think that he is just, way underrated as a master actor and he's phenomenal in everything and just his kind of muted and very simple approach in this film was perfect and i think you know actually i may be changing my connected point like on the fly right here so because of a moment of him that i'll get to later but anyway i, I really appreciated the way that her arc went but you're right. I, I mean, I really almost it, it would say it's so close to 50 50 for me. And that's what makes this movie great is because Marcus, here he is, this younger teenage kid who is like he was so scared to do anything in the first movie. Right. And he's having to come into his own and now on his own is trying to take care of this baby. I mean, I can't, because I can't put myself in that situation, Patrick. Like, I can't even fathom even being a parent of multiple kids, like having, you know, being a 14, 15 year old kid, whatever he is. And then a responsibility of a child in this situation where you have to manage oxygen. And, you know, the only way you can get pure silence and safety is to go into this sealed off furnace and close yourself off from outside oxygen in the hopes that you're able to be quiet long enough or to have a conversation and then you can come out and go back into silent mode, essentially. I just, there's so much pressure on that kid and he is up to the task and it's incredibly impressive. It's like one of those fight or flight kind of scenarios where you feel like he's in fight mode the whole movie. And I just loved seeing him progressively refuse to give up and want to push forward to like make things better, better, better. Um, so one thing uh, before we move on shoes, I, I wanted to ask you about shoes because <laughs> shoes, Who needs shoes. shoes? <laughs> well, there were people on Twitter arguing about this. People on Twitter argue about lots of things. And so this was one of the more really? funny, <laughs> funny really? ones. That, <laughs> there's not a lot of dissension about this film, but this is the one, this is the thing. It was, you know, we see the Abbots not wearing shoes. And specifically, when Regan sets off on her journey, she is shoeless. <laughs> Patch. But Cillian Murphy's character clearly is not shoeless. He is wearing boots. And Regan deals with glass and rocks and all of these things. So my question for you is, why are the Abbots going without shoes still? And if they live in this world where it's so completely you know, devastated and everyone's gone and dead, like shouldn't they have been able to come across shoes at some point? 
which way would you go? Would you want shoes or would you want to go the potentially, I'm assuming that they're doing it for means of trying to stay quieter, but at the risk of completely cutting their foot wide open and, and getting it infected in a world that there's no antibiotics to get either. So which way would you go? Well, I would go shoes because of the fact that, well, let me, let me back up and say why them versus Emmett who has shoes. What we have are people that are cut off from each other. And so what I think is great about the rules set up for this film are that they are pretty general. And we are discovering some of the rules as the movies play out. Obviously, we know that these creatures are very sensitive to sound. That if you go to a waterfall or in Evelyn Abbott's case, you start a, a sprinkler system by exploding a, an oxygen tank, it's going to jack up their ability to, to hear. And, and I asked that question while I was watching the movie. I was like, man, I feel bad for the Abbots because they don't have shoes, but what does he know that they don't? Well, he knows what he knows. It's not like he was given a rule book when all this stuff went down and says, look, the best way that you can keep quiet is by putting sand on the ground and walking with your bare feet. He didn't know any better. And so to your next question with regard to, do you think they would have found shoes somewhere? Probably, but if you look at the landscape, they don't travel more than a day or two in any direction. You know, when they go, when they meet up with him, I think it's like a day after the events at their house. And when they go to the island, they mentioned that it was like a day or two's journey. So they're probably not leaving. Now, and they only go to a couple of different places. I mean, we noticed she goes back to the drugstore to get medicine, to get more oxygen tanks. Clearly, these are marked paths because they have sand on them. So they're not venturing out very far. So to actually find people that have shoes, I don't think you're going to find those. I mean, they're not going across the country. They're not even going across the state. They are staying close, and they only go as far as they need to. And the odds of them running into people or running into dead bodies, the only time I actually thought about that, Aaron, was when Regan was in the train, train car, and she saw those dead bodies and some, some girl with some lady with boots. And I was like, uh, maybe you don't want to put those on because they've been like corroded with dead body stuff. So I don't think they would have had a choice because they didn't have them. And if they had, I think they, if we get a part three, I think they'll have shoes on, honestly, because you can only take your, your foot so far in any this direction. Is, this is what we're all going to be looking out for. Uh, put it in the, <laughs> I'm not going to watch it, but put it in the trailer, John. So that yeah. people don't have to like talk about it leading into just the show, actual movie. Just, just no feet running yeah. with shoes. <laughs> yeah, just put it in the movie. I would be very man torn. I, I like you. I agree. I mean, this is a family who has been shoeless because of their father's goals and the way that they've walked on sand. I mean, this is the first time they've gone past that sand path. So it's understandable that they would still be shoeless with wrapped feet. I do think long term that with more movement, with more traversing of the world that they're going to be doing clearly, yeah, they need to get some footwear. And it's an interesting problem. I think it's one of the great scenarios set up by this premise, though, because it's something so simple that you don't even think about. Like you think about not using your voice, not bumping into things, but every single step 
of you moving somewhere in this world, you are putting yourself at risk because of the sound that it simply makes when you take a step and what that would sound like, whether it's, a, you know, a barefoot or a boot. So, yeah, I mean, I don't I wouldn't have lasted. I mean, that's what it boils down to. I would have been dead a long time ago. Um, and I apologize to my family because I would not have been able to protect them and keep them safe either. So it's a good thing this has not happened. And if we get invaded by aliens that are ready to take us over, let's hope that this is not how they try and do it. Speaking of those aliens, and we'll call them monsters too for the sake of horror movie tropes being, do you show the monster? Do you not show the monster? One of the cool things about the first movie is that they don't show it a lot. And it's an incredible design. And I actually remember at the end thinking to myself, man, I kind of wish I'd seen more of that monster because it looked really, really cool. And yet there are many people out there who don't want to see the monster. They want the monster to be lurking and hidden and characters to be scared, etc. I loved the way that John handled it in this film. And right from the start, the beginning of this taking us into a flashback sequence was super cool as a choice because not only do we get to see the invasion or whatever you want to call it, their arrival and how it disrupts the town and how they kind of took it over. You get this amazing one shot scene where Emily Blunt is driving a car backwards and a bus is coming at her. And I was reading about how, John told her that this was going to be an actual stunt and the bus was really going to come at 40 miles an hour. And she was like, oh, heck no. And he's like, no, you'll be fine. And they had to practice it for three weeks or something to get like one minute of a scene. And the the bus that they use is like specially modified to have instantaneous braking and all of these things. And it was the first take that they filmed it on. And so all of her cussing and freaking out is like legitimately her thinking she's going to get crushed by this bus. <laughs> and I'm torn sometimes on how I feel about that, but it worked and it made for a great scene in a movie, but I love the tension and I love the way that the family is separated and trying to get back together. And you're seeing how they are able to adapt to this world and this new situation because of their ability to use sign language and their ability to, not have to speak to each other and to trust each other. And and I thought that that was really compelling and really interesting just to see this great 10 minute background with lots of monster attacks or alien attacks. And I would love if in future entries, we get to see even more of the past, but I would like it like this. I don't need, a, I don't know that I want a prequel. I would like to see it revealed in flashback sequences like this once per movie or something, you know, kind of slowly revealing me more information rather than just going back in time and giving me a story beforehand that would obviously not be able to include the Abbots. So that led into, so we saw a lot of the monsters in this opening sequence. And then from then on, the aliens are, I'm using it interchangeably now, just sue me, but we see them all the time in this, frankly, is what it boils down to. They are not any longer just this hidden thing and our characters are in these cramped spaces and not able to see them. And I thought that it was extremely effective and this was part of the expansion I was talking about with style because your characters aren't stuck in a house anymore. Your characters are moving across the land going on this journey, one of them is. And so, yeah, you're going to have to see the 
the alien. Like it's going to attack and you're going to, to get that. And I thought that it was, you know, refreshing to get a little bit of a different type of horror vibe there with the attack sequences than you get when you're just holed up and not able to see them. There was a lot more action, a lot more having to fight them off in this one because they've learned these tools to do so. That's the other thing, right? Yeah, they're equipped now. Mm-hmm. They understand how to do that. And so you're, you, you have to see it in order to, <laughs> to mm-hmm. get close enough to use the tool, right? right. So I, I just thought I made perfect sense from a narrative perspective. And then just, I enjoyed because I rewatched the first film and I liked the progression. Again, I don't want every movie to feel the exact same. I don't want it to be a carbon mm-hmm. copy of the original. I want you to expand like he did on it. Yeah. And so for, for me, I thought it was really cool to get to see more of them in this one. And because of that great monster design in general, yeah. like it was, man, they, they are some terrifying creatures. Yeah, we. I don't know if we talked about this on the original episode, but I know that there were some challenges with the character design or the monster design from ILM. Krasinski received a version of the character, or I keep saying character, of the monster design, and he just didn't see it as working. And so the folks at ILM went back to the drawing board and came up with what we see on screen. And I want to read just a quick paragraph from one of the Screen Rant reviews about the movie's Design. Krasinski's primary request to ILM and visual effects supervisor Scott Farrar was to hold the aliens back as much as possible. This is from the original film. From the start, they wanted the experience to be more like Jaws, in which the monsters aren't seen too much, which forces the audience to fill in the blanks with their imagination. But the creatives really started to like what the production team came up with, and they decided to show off the aliens even more towards the end of the film. Given audiences one or two scenes to analyze the alien monsters goes a long way and helping them understand this movie's world. And I think that's part of the purpose of the first entry. Get us an introduction. Let us feel the tension of what it's like to live in this world where we don't know a lot about these aliens, where we're like the Abbots. We're discovering things as we go. Now we have a weapon, and there's no point in keeping these alien monsters hidden because we need to be able to interact with them more as an audience and as along with these characters. And as a side note, Aaron, once you have a great looking design for a monster, show it off. I mean, really, there were some fantastic moments where we got to see. Thank you. These things up close. And we're like, that's awesome. Yeah. When when their oral cavities open up and they're click, they look like clickers Clickers. from last of us. Right. And, but again, less is more. You don't want to bombard your audience with all this stuff because it's still about the Abbots. It's always going to be a character story. This is something that I'm concerned about if there's a third entry is are we going to get a prequel or a flashback of these aliens coming from this weird planet and now it becomes an outer space opera, you know, space opera. No, I hope it doesn't get that way. I hope it still stays into the kind of walking dead kind of grounded story. But the question is, you know, how do you expand it? Obviously, Emily Blunt, she's got a very creative and super smart husband. She's like, he's got some great ideas. And, you know, in Krasinski, we trust, I guess, at this point. But for this entry, I think we've got just enough of seeing the monsters that we're past the mystery of who they are. We're discovering more. We need to see more. And I think the balance of all of that really shined in this entry. So speaking of that expansion, and I love that you just mentioned The Walking Dead, because... That leads me into something else that, and 
I have a couple, I don't even want to call them criticisms, but I had a couple things that I was like mixed on, if not all downright upset about in this film. One of those, the ones that I was really mixed on was like the way we're going to use these post-apocalyptic tropes. So in every post-apocalyptic movie, it seems like there is a survivor colony that people have to seek out, right? I am legend, the walking dead. Like there's always like this place that provides hope for characters to continue and go through the struggle that they're living in. And they want to get there, right? It's going to be the magical saving grace for, for them. And that's just a common thing. And so I almost, I did roll my eyes a little bit when I, when I found out that was what was going to happen. I was like, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to go seek out the mystical radio signal that is clearly going to be a colony of humans or whatever, you know, and, and then the other trope, which pertains to the walking dead very clearly too, is the idea that there are going to be in any sort of event like this, there would be humans that would become worse than the, the, the alien or the monster. And maybe not worse is not the right choice, but just as bad. You're going to have to deal with other humans that are also a danger to you because they're going to shift the way that they handle survival mode in a selfish manner versus the way that you may be trying to survive. Now, I'm curious what you think. I, I will tell you, ultimately, these two things are tropes for a reason, <laughs> as most tropes are. And that's because the general consensus would be like, if we experience world events of this nature, these are the things that are going to happen, right? And so it makes sense to have that happen in this world. And so ultimately I was able to let go of that pretty quickly and just reflect and enjoy and, and kind of take in how they were presented to us versus the fact that that's what was happening. But that did lead into a sort of feeling that ended up carrying over into the ending, which I'll talk about when we get to the ending here. But, but I wondered what you felt about that. Like, did, did those things stick out to you at all? Like that. So I know that, the general emotional connection of the character arcs was what was going to connect for you and me. We were going to care about a person going on her journey to try and live up to her father's name and save the family. And we were going to care about a man who's lost his kid trying to redeem himself by making sure that this other child is going to achieve her goals and he's going to keep her safe. And then we have the son who is trying to take care of a baby to stand up and like make sure that his mom can get through and is not alone and all of these things like those were going to connect with this but story-wise from a character has to find safe zone and character has to go through evil cannibalistic weird people on a dock what did that do for you well i'm going to go back to the uncharted series every uncharted game is about finding something right it stars our good man nathan drake and his posse of people and much of the same stuff happens. You've got a bad guy who's trying to get the treasure just like him. You've got henchmen who are trying to shoot at him. You've got one-liners that are great. You've got grip strength from another planet that takes place in every game. All these things you get used to, but it's the way in which they're presented that make the story fun. You know what you're getting 
when you deal with this stuff. I think we talked about this on our way back episode where there were sports tropes that existed, but because we were familiar with them, it's how they're being used. And I think that Krasinski, because he knows that his characters matter more than the story, I'm not saying that the story is thrown out. The story is equally valuable, but I think that those things are a means to an end. They catapult the character development in a way that makes us appreciate these characters more. I love that doc sequence because of the fact that, and I knew this, Aaron, when during the flashback sequence, Emmett's like, you know, how do you say dive? Like, why would you say dive when referring to a baseball game? Why are you asking about dive? Like, oh, he's learning a sign that he's going to have to pick up later. And of course he does it. And I kind of grinned. I was like, oh, okay, I see what you did there. It's kind of like a little joke that a comedian tells at the beginning of his act that he brings back later. That's fine. It didn't bother me because I think that these things were a means to an end. Going to that island where that survivor camp lived, all it did, Aaron, for the story's sake, was get them to the radio tower. That's all it did. None of those characters did anything significant. I mean, even, oh, I forget the actor's name, who plays the 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 character that they talked to, he ends up just getting killed when they get to the radio tower. Jamon so, Hansu? Yeah, I was, yes. exactly. And like, Anyway, I'll but, talk about him later. But but it doesn't it doesn't bother me in a sense that it felt wasted. I think it was a means to an end. And there's a level of familiarity as a storyteller that you sort of tap into. You can't be original with everything. And I think enough of Krasinski's story was refreshing enough that it's fine to use that kind of stuff. And as long as you're not trying to create unnecessary drama in those sequences. Look, Scoot McNary, who plays the insane doc guy who goes after, I mean, he didn't have to say anything, but I love him as an actor. When I saw him listed, I was like, cool, I get to see him do his thing. And I was I was a little like personally disappointed because I love seeing him act. He's great in Halt and Catch Fire. And so to see him as this insane red-eyed character that completely gets diced, you know, sliced and diced by these by these monsters, it was fine. I think it created a lot of fun action one. But I would say these tropes are not disappointing in as much as they are a means to an end to elevate what we already love about the movie. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And I think that we land in the same spot there overall with their existence in the film. And I just, I don't know how you tell one without... (laughs) Like, I don't know what else the natural progression of this story is. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. I, I've, I've racked my brain. And I was like, hey, maybe I can write this better than John. No, guess what? I can't. <laughs> and there's a reason. You know, it's not about that. And and it's the case with so many movies and so many stories. Our, you know, James Harleman, Cinemagogue, one of our, our favorite writers and film critics and fellow and a pastor who, you know, always brings this up. Says there's only you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I guess he brings it up. It's in the Bible. But essentially, it's the idea, you know, of who is it? Joseph. I forgot the guy's name. The guy's name is Campbell. And it's the elements of a story and the the types of stories that exist. And and you you can only do so much. Right. And so it's really all about execution. And that's where Krasinski has shown his chops that he can do that in an exceptionally gripping manner. And I'm okay with that. Speaking of the ending, so here's my problem with the movie, and this is a very frustrating place for me because I really loved this film, 
And I left this movie completely unsatisfied in the moment. Now, I walked out. I had to give my thoughts to my press rep. I raved about it, but I also ranted about my ending issue. And it's because the first film ends with Evelyn. That's a terrible name. Emily with a shotgun in the basement, you know, nail gone through her foot. Baby just got born. It's flooding. There's an alien down there. They use the hearing aid. They're like, ah, it worked. And then boom, shotgun to the face. Bam, black screen. The movie ends, right? One of the most incredible endings to a movie because you have no expectation of a sequel. It's something completely fresh, completely new. John didn't know he was going to write a sequel at that point or, or was going to be able to do one. And so the movie completely and utterly stands on its own as a, we don't care what happens after that moment. She makes a badass moment. She says something really strong and like it ends. They, they made it through that moment. That was what mattered was making it through that moment. So then we go through this entire suspenseful story of separating the characters again. And we end up with the same kind of ending, only much more action packed where we have Regan fighting off the alien on the island and they're, you know, she's with Silly Murphy's character and they're going through the, the radio tower and Jamon Hansu pretty quickly comes and goes, which I mean, like, I, whatever. I mean, he was fine. I, I, just, it, I didn't mind the fact that he died. I just, I, I kind of. He's hanging out I with felt, Marcus Aurelius. It's all good. He's hanging out. and He know. felt he felt like he has so much more gravitas to offer in that role that I just, it was weird for me to have him disappear so quickly. But, you know, whatever. I get that's that's probably the point. The problem for me was just the way that we ended because we, we are bumping up the tension and the energy and it is just ratcheting up tight, 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 tight. And it is scary, scary, scary. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to work. And then bam, the same concept. And it just ends. The movie just ends again. They defeat their individual alien at each spot and they're alive and it's, and it's fade to black. There's no kind of sequence showing us any sort of story for what is going to happen after that moment my issue with it patrick and, and and i i darn near hated it it felt to me like the type of cliffhanger at the end of a single episode of a television series like a penultimate episode of a season or something of that nature where they're not even gonna tease the next movie and while that works so well at the first film because it felt like a standalone movie, when you now exist in the midst of what is clearly going to be a franchise and a series, I think you need to tease me something about what is going on in this world and what is it that I need to be interested in instead of repetitively ending your film with that same zinger moment of like okay they just survived i'm like because for me patrick it just felt very samey i was just like okay well that's what happened last time they just survived and i don't know man i just it just felt pretty flat to me because of that and it it let down some of that anxiety that was built up from the win of successfully living there's no resolution to the characters there's no resolution to 
that island and its people. And and I guess I just feel like so many most sequels are successful because what they tend to do is they tend to lead you and give you a taste of like, hey, here's what we could kind of expect, right? And I don't know what that would have looked like. I'm again, I'm not trying to write the movie for them, but just ending it with that flash ending of just boom, now it's over. I was like, that's it. Instead of like, hell yeah, like I was at the end of the first one. So I don't know. How did you take it? Yeah, I was the same way. I didn't love the ending of the first one. I think I mentioned that Emily Blunt came across a little bit too badass for me. You Not did. that she was dainty, <laughs> but she and, and she is. She is. She is that. But it seemed a little bit too abrupt for me. So I liked the ending of the first one, and I disliked the ending of the second one. Because I'll go ahead and just give this away. My my connecting point was that whole sequence leading up to it, and I'll tell you why once we get to that. But you're exactly right. For the exact same reasons, I didn't expect a sequel, and it felt complete. Knowing that this is the second part, it felt like a tease. And it didn't fade to black, Aaron. It jumped to black. There's a difference, because... When you go from film to black and then credits, that is really frustrating. When you see her do her thing, when you see the kill happen, and then the camera would fade to black, it's almost like it's telling you, yep, we're ending, we're ending, we're ending. Up until I saw it written and directed by John Krasinski, I was like, okay, are we getting an aftermath? Are we getting an aftermath? We're not. Oh, yeah, it's time to go. This is only an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. And it, it kind of bothered me because that felt more deliberate. Like, we're going to have a third one for you. We're doing it. And I immediately searched A Quiet Place Part 3 to see what was in the works. And really all I could find was, yeah, there's a possibility for that. No, there better be a third one because that's really frustrating. When you're not even letting me know what happened to these characters. Do they get back together? Because at the end of the first film, I wasn't as concerned about them surviving. I figured, okay, they found the way to kill. This is probably what's going to happen. They're going to leave the house and go do their thing. And what we got was A Quiet Place Part 2. Now you've got separation. Now you've got these two kids who need to get back to their family, get back together, how are they going to do that? And yes, I would love to see that in a part three. But if you're not going to guarantee that, if you're not going to at least tease that, you know, come back next year where we'll see what happens. We'll finish this thing out. It really felt to me, Aaron, like Pirates 2. And in some ways, here's what happens when you have a third entry in mind but don't have it finalized is a second film can feel like a long setup. This one didn't. But Pirates 2 ended up feeling like a long tease for At World's End or Dead Man's Chest. I can't remember which one was the third one. I think Dead Man's Chest was the third one. But it – so it leaves you with a little bit of frustration because you're like, okay, you need to you need to guarantee me something. Short so film, let me, great. Finish it up. Epilogue, I don't care, but give me – pay it off. Yeah, let me and let me, let me piggyback on that because what I think is – what you were what it hit me when you were saying that is you are essentially teasing for all we know the only thing it could be is like how do we get back together now and for me that's a lot less compelling because now again i feel like we're making an arc of a television show where 
we were together. Then we took a movie where we got separated. Now we're going to take a movie where we're going to get back together. But, and that would that's fine in some storytelling. It's not fine when your world is overrun by aliens because the ultimate goal – I'm sorry. I mean there's only so many ways you can spin it. The ultimate goal is you have to find a way to end the aliens. Like, like there has to be an element of this where it, I hope that they don't become superheroes and try to do it themselves. But like how do you – what is the long-term solution to these these characters' lives? And right now, because of the way it ended, I felt so much like we were just living in this moment-to-moment scenario. And reality is, like, <laughs> this is a bigger problem. And, and I want to know what's going to happen with that. Not just are you going to get back together at the end of the next movie and then you're going to end it and you're safe. Because the problem still exists. The aliens are still there. You still can't you know have any sort of long-term you know vitality because mm-hmm. they're gonna get you eventually like what is your solution to that well and so what you have here aaron to what you're speaking to is you have a limited supply of things not just of resources within the film but you have a limited story at some point you've created this world things are not growing you're not getting replenished resources. Once you fire off enough bullets, you're out. And I think the same rule applies with the story. You can only tell so many stories with the Abbots without creating higher stakes and higher stakes. I mean, if we're talking about A Quiet Place Part 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, we're getting into TV storyland now where we start discovering other families beyond the Abbots who are figuring out how they survived this stuff and how we have to flashback. This is what happened in Lost when we got to discover the others is we got to see how the quote, the other half lived on the other other side of the Island. And I think that while that's well and good, your story can sometimes get too big for your ability to cast and direct. And it can kind of flame out. I think that's the risk that you're running. When you start expanding your story, and making it bigger, your world's bigger, your mythology bigger, you start getting into a place where, okay, eventually it becomes unbelievable. Like, if this is the thing that kills the aliens, I'm going to start thinking, if I'm living in this world through multiple films, the aliens are going to start adapting to that. They're going to start figuring out, oh, these people have this. Okay, aliens are smart. They're going to figure it out because as an audience, I'm going to be like, I think the aliens should figure it out. If we start getting into a place where we start feeling sorry for these aliens, I think we've jumped the shark. And this is me talking about multiple movies that haven't been made yet. But I think that's the risk when you start leaving room for that kind of stuff. It's great. And you either pay it off, but pay it off pretty quickly because you're going to start losing me as an audience. And not that I'm the guy that you need to impress. But sometimes your franchise will lose steam and you're going to start getting into Friday the 13th land where you're like, how do we reinvent this? How do we make it refreshing? How do we build off of this mythology? And then you start kind of backtracking. And I don't want to be a pessimist about this, but an ending like that can pose a lot of challenges. Now, I put a lot of trust in Krasinski. He's put two amazing films together. I hope that he doesn't try to milk this for multiple films. I hope 
if there's a third one, it's the third and final one because this would make a pretty great trilogy if he ends on a, on a high note. But if this turns into part two of seven or part two of eight, man, it's going to diminish the previous entries because the first one was so good. And the more entries you put to it, it just makes that first film feel like, okay, yeah, that was good. It was a great little setup for parts two and four. You know what? But in part five, they did this. And then they got the magic wand in part eight and it really got the aliens. Yeah, you're right. It does. It It will overall have a diminishing effect on the first film. You're, you're so right. And I just don't know where it goes. I don't see where you can't defeat the aliens next movie. That's not that the structure of these two films would be an insane kind of jump. They to, haven't gone anywhere. They've gone probably a grand total of like what? 15, 20 miles. Yeah. yeah I mean, like, exactly. Exactly. In and the so, Northeast, right? <laughs> so you would think like, well, what's the reasonable, logical conclusion to this, right? Is they're able to get the information for the technology that they have to combat the alien via sound out to a bigger organization like a military who can then utilize and mobilize that tech in order to start cleaning out the aliens. And then you never get to know where they came from. You never know why they're there in the first place. There's always other questions you're going to have to choose what you want to have and what you not want to have. But yeah, I think you nailed it when you said like at some point very soon, like it just has to not be about the Abbots. And so maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's what Krasinski's going for. And probably that's probably the best case scenario, honestly, is like for the next film to be just them getting back together while also simultaneously somehow something happens that they're able to get this tech out in the world and then they're able to have their little family united. And be somewhere where they feel that they are safe. And then whatever happens after that is not having anything to do with the Abbots. Like, we're done with them. They went through their story. They had their arc, right? And then the world of A Quiet Place could expand to tell us about what what has happened and why they were there. And to tell us how they get dealt with across the world. But the Abbots part is over. So I'm, I'm hoping, because that's really, honestly, I don't know where it goes other than that, that could work for me. Yeah, they'll start spinning off to a quiet summer place, a quiet flat, <laughs> a quiet bungalow. I mean, these will be like little one-off stories from around the world about how these people dealt with the aliens. It <laughs> would. It happen. would be. It'd be wild. <laughs> All right. Well, last but not least, let's get into our connecting points. And yours is the end of the movie. I guess we'll go in chronological order. So I, I really don't know. I... It's been a couple of weeks since I've seen it, which is always a struggle for me, unfortunately, which we don't usually do it this way, but it happens. And there's a couple of moments that stood out to me. So I'm just going to say this. One of them is Regan and Marcus having a conversation in the furnace before she takes off and her trying to convince him that she needs to do this because she has to take care of them. The brother-sister dynamic in this and in those moments, in those scenes before she leaves, is just what I really connected to. Which is strange, because I don't have any siblings. But I just thought it was so well acted and so well handled. And the way that Marcus, like, is just, he can't get up. And he's so upset. Like, he wants to tell on her because he doesn't want her to go because he's scared. But he has to trust her. And he has to allow her to do what she needs to do. And just there's just... So much emotion in between the two of them. And and you can tell that these characters love each other. 
so much and they care about each other so much. And so those moments between the two before they split up was a highlight for me. And the other moment was Silly Murphy's character on the dock, essentially like what it feels like is going to be sacrificing himself. Right. And using sign language to tell her to swim um, was brilliant. I just thought that was it was unexpected to me because of the tension in the scene. I really believe we were going to lose him in that moment. That He was going to have to somehow self-sacrifice himself. Self-sacrifice himself. Yeah, that's probably redundant. He was going to be sacrificial in some way in order to let her get away. And so when that happens, that's what you're expecting. And for that whole moment to play out the way it does was shocking to me in a just awesome way, both from an action standpoint, but also just like you said, starting off with that scene where he tells her, hey, you know, dive. I'm going to do something. I'm going to try to get you out of here, but I need you to do this and to do it because it's the way that they can communicate. It just it mean, means more. It makes it more special for me um, yeah so i really love those two moments they're so good man i mean it, all I, I think that i don't think it seem wasted with these m- moments with the characters interacting with each other because it's what matters you know it's all about character and for me this is why this is surprising both of those moments were fantastic the moment that i really connected with was actually a technical moment and i think this is this is rare but from a filmmaking standpoint i think this is why I enjoyed watching the film and we alluded to it earlier when we talked about these two story arcs and how they were sort of imbalanced. So you had tension with one character and then that tension rolled into another one. So you had this like ebbing and flowing between Evelyn, excuse me, between Regan and Marcus as we move back. And then as the movie gets closer to its climax, Krasinski goes back and forth a lot quicker. And then the final moment where both Regan and Marcus kill their adversaries in different ways. You know, Marcus has got the pistol and Regan's got the, I don't know what that is, like a crowbar or something. It's not a crowbar, but it's something where she's able to just knock the thing out. And what I thought was beautiful about it was the tracking shot. It's seeing both of them walk slowly toward these aliens because it reminded me a lot of uh, the Babadook when you have this mom who is staring face to face with their fear. And I thought this is fantastic, but because for, for Regan, this is when she was her father's daughter. You know, she was staring down at this thing that she could not hear, but she could see. And dude, again, this goes back to the character design. So good. And so scary. I don't know that I could stare the thing in the face knowing this was happening, but her deafness was an advantage because she didn't hear all the screeching and squealing. And then I thought there was such a beautiful moment where she raises her arm up to get ready to strike. Marcus points the gun. And then the next thing we see is her hitting her monster. And then we see his monster falling to the ground. We don't see him shoot. But we see the aftermath of that. And I thought Zack Snyder is probably the king of slow-mo in terms of how much he uses it. Krasinski, I think, uses this very subtly in a way that kind of lets you breathe in this moment. It was not a moment for you to clap necessarily and say, great, they defeated the monsters. But I think it spoke to a way of saying that 
these kids have grown up in a matter of two or three days. And this was the moment where they said, okay, we can do this. We can survive and we can live. It doesn't diminish anything that Emmett or Evelyn were doing in support of that, but it really kind of put the exclamation point on the fact that this was a movie driven by these kids and that it was always going to be about them. And so in spite of the fact of how we felt at the ending of the movie, I think the moments leading up to that and the way in which it was done simultaneously was just really, really beautifully shot. So for me, I really connected with that. Concur. Well, that wraps up this episode of Feeling Film. This was fantastic to talk about. And if you can get to a theater, please do for this one. It is a fantastic experience on the big screen with sound design and all of the other aspects that make this film work in a darkened theater. Then come back. Join the conversation in our Facebook group or catch us online here and there. Um, Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.